forming a business entity? That's the easy part. This is Prime Law Podcast, your source for good counsel. I'm your host, Andrew Mertzenich, licensed attorney. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Prime Law Podcast. We've just concluded our serial on real estate transactions and disclosures, and one topic that a couple of people have asked me to cover is what type of business entity would be right for them to start a business with. So we'll be moving away from real estate now and working our way into the realm of business formation and management. With that, let's dive into some of the concepts that you should understand when deciding what type of business entity to create. I'll be using the terms business entity and legal entity interchangeably, but at their core, legal or business entities are distinct from natural persons. A legal entity is recognized by the government and can enter contracts in its own name. A business entity can also sue or be sued, and it can maintain bank accounts and insurance policies. In short, a legal entity usually is able to conduct all commercial activity that an individual can, while lacking the humanity. It is instead just a recognized business concept. It is an idea. So to understand business entities better, it is helpful to know about some core concepts regarding personhood, ownership, management, tax status, compliance, and a concept we will refer to as jurisdiction. We'll get to that more in a moment. So there are two types of persons, as we've implied, natural and legal. A natural person is what you commonly think of when someone says the word person. It's a human being. It is a life. A legal person, though, is an artificial entity recognized by the law as a person. So natural persons might have restraints on their legal capacity. For example, they only acquire their full citizenship rights at the age of majority. People declared legally incompetent also are unable to enter into contracts for certain things such as care or insurance. Natural persons can also own property individually or with others. They can enter contracts, pay taxes, and engage in political activity, all the things that a human being is allowed to do in our society. However, when a government recognizes a legal entity, the government confers certain rights and responsibilities upon that entity, and legal entities might have restraints on their legal rights. A natural person has the freedom of speech, the freedom to move about, whereas a corporation or an LLC may be limited in its business activities or where it is allowed to conduct business. In many countries, legal entities can own property, enter contracts, pay taxes. Legal entities may or may not have the right to engage in political activity in their own name. For instance, in the United States, engaging in Political activities, while as a non-for-profit, may cause you to lose your rights as a non-profit. Notice that most of the business-related rights are common to natural and legal persons, and this is a foundational concept when forming a business. You are incorporating a legal entity, which can do most of the things that you can do. 
So that's the concept behind a natural versus a legal person. So legal entities do not appear out of thin air though. Legal entities have owners who can either be individuals or even other business entities. Case in point, your local franchise fast food operation may have a large corporate umbrella managing its stores, but each physical location could be located within a separate legal entity. This is how in the practice of law, we work to mitigate liability among our clients. For this example, we learn that there are two aspects to ownership of a legal entity though. An owner can have a monetary or economic interest, while another owner can have a management interest in a company. An economic or monetary interest means that an owner has the right to receive profits from the legal entity. This does not mean, though, that the entity has an obligation to distribute profits to the owners in the form of dividends or distributions. Rather, a monetary or economic interest means that the owner has a claim on the financial value of the enterprise. If the business is sold, for example, owners receive a share of the proceeds following payment to creditors. A pro rata share or proportional share means that if someone owns a 5% stake in a legal entity, then if and when that entity is sold, the owner receives 5% of the sales price. The simplest example of a purely economic owner is someone who holds a share of stock in a publicly traded company. If you own a single share of, say, Apple, that's the you know, big conglomerate of tech, you'd have the right to receive approximately one out of 349,480,000 of the sales price if it were ever acquired. Congratulations. However, you have no right to appoint people to the board of directors of Alphabet, although you can probably vote your share for a slate of directors. Contrasting that with a management owner, an owner who has the power to make decisions on behalf of the legal entity has management rights. A management owner might exert that authority somewhat indirectly by participating on the board of directors or by working as an officer of the company, such as chief executive officer or president or managing director or some similar title. Diving a little deeper into that management side, Management refers as well to the people appointed by the owners to oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the business entity. The terminology for management can vary between corporations and other forms like limited liability companies. For clarity and simplicity, let's just use the corporate terms director and officer. So owners appoint directors to represent them on the board of directors. In small and medium businesses, owners will often just appoint themselves, but there's no obligation to do that. At a minimum though, directors will conduct an annual meeting and appoint the officers. The organizational documents, that's your articles of incorporation or your series LLC certification, may also reserve certain decisions about the business to the directors instead of the officers. For instance, mergers and acquisitions, sale of a major asset, or even declarations of bankruptcy fall under the purview of the board of directors. Officers, though, or if you're an LLC, sometimes called a manager, or in a non-for-profit realm, the executive director, 
are those positions that have the authority to direct the daily business of the company as well as to enter the business into contracts of sort. Basically, the officers run the day-to-day -day operations, whereas the directors are more interested in strategic analysis and long-term planning. Moving away from the people side of things, the officers and directors, we now move on to the paperwork stuff, and we should probably take a quick detour now into the realm of taxes, because when you start a business entity, you will most likely have tax liability, if not right out, but when the business moves into profitability, we hope in the future. So tax law though applied to legal entities is very complex. And as you are starting your business or thinking about starting a business entity, you will want to consult with your dream team. That is your attorney, your tax accountant, and your financial advisor. This is because the choice of legal entity can have lasting consequences for the taxes owed and paid by both the business entity itself and the owners. So while there are state and local tax implications for purposes of this podcast, we're going to be speaking generally on federal taxes. So in broad strokes, though, entities are either disregarded for tax purposes or they pay entity-level taxes. When an entity is disregarded for tax purposes, we say that the entity benefits from pass-through tax status. Pass-through entities do not pay taxes on their business income. Instead, the owners pay income taxes on their share of the income from the business. The income is deemed to, quote, pass through, quote, to the owners, and so does the tax obligation. And this avoids the problem of what is known as double taxation. See, corporations in the United States are subject to double taxation. What does this mean? Double taxation means that the entity pays taxes and then the owner pays taxes on dividends or distributions. So, quick example. Imagine that a company has gross sales of a million dollars. After its cost of goods and operating expenses, it has a profit of $100,000 or a 10% net profit margin. Not bad. It decides to distribute 10% of the profits before taxes or what is $10,000 to the shareholders. A corporation, however, must pay taxes on its profits before the distribution to shareholders. So our company, assuming a corporate tax rate of 35%, must pay $35,000 out of the $100,000 in profits as corporate taxes. So now the company distributes 10% of $65,000 because we take the $35,000 out of that $100,000 profit and distributes that to shareholders, or instead of the shareholders receiving $10,000, they only receive $6,500 as their dividend. So the double taxation now kicks in because of that $6,500, the shareholders who receive that distribution must now pay individual income tax on the dividend. So not only do the shareholders receive less, that is, they've only received $6,500 instead of $10,000 in our example, now, say they just have a tax rate in the normal range of 15 to 25%, that 6,500 is now taxed. 
based upon the individual income tax rate, a shareholder that started with $10,000 in a potential distribution ends up between $4,000 to $5,000. But putting just the financial and taxation ideas away, there are a lot of good reasons for the corporate form. For example, maybe the growth strategy of this company means that the company will retain profits rather than distribute them. Many tech companies were like this for several years where they didn't have income distributions to their shareholders. In that case, double taxation really isn't a problem, and having the corporate form still protects the owners from liability, as we'll discuss in a moment. business entity also has obligations regarding where the entity is incorporated. When you incorporate, it isn't a single one-and-done thing. You're required to maintain the legal entity to preserve all of those benefits. Each jurisdiction is different, but there are some commonalities between all of them. For instance, uh, you will have a periodic filing and the payment of a fee of some kind to maintain the entity and missing that filing or failing to make the payment, you risk the legal shield of the entity, not just for yourself, but for every owner and officer in your organization. Instead of having the liability shield, you could be on the hook for the liabilities of the company. Jurisdiction also is an issue. Jurisdiction refers to the part or level of the government which has authority over a business entity. So the federal government has jurisdiction over federal taxes, but the state where the entity is incorporated has jurisdiction over the corporate law and taxes of the business. The most important jurisdiction concepts for entities, though, are the place of incorporation and the principal place of business. Where you incorporate and where you do business are two different questions. Let's start with the place of incorporation. Most businesses incorporate in the state where they will do business and where the owners live, but that does not have to be the case. The United States has no national registration system. Businesses, rather, are incorporated in one of the 50 states. The state where a business is incorporated is called the place of incorporation. And as a general rule, a business can incorporate in any state. However, many businesses choose to incorporate in Delaware because of its well-established corporate law and trained courts in the area of business law and corporate resolution. The principal place of business, on the other hand, is the jurisdiction where the business has its headquarters or does its principal business. So a business is able to incorporate, say, in Delaware, and have its principal place of business in Illinois, even if the owners live in a different state, say, New York. So there are several implications that flow from the jurisdictions that we've talked about where a business chooses to incorporate and conduct its business. The place of incorporation will determine what type of legal entities are available. You see, not all entities are available in all jurisdictions, and the laws governing those entities change from state to state. There are also two costs to consider when choosing a jurisdiction. First, what is the cost of the filing fees? There might be many depending on the number of steps. You should also understand the cost to renew and maintain that registration in your jurisdiction. In addition, some jurisdictions have minimum paid-in capital requirements. In other words, 
you have to have the money up front, and it's a minimum amount, just to register the company. And this requirement can also depend on the type of legal entity in that jurisdiction. When it comes to the timing of incorporation, registering a new legal entity can be quick and easy or long and arduous. In Illinois, my experience has been it tends to be fairly quick. You can incorporate in as little as a few days, especially if you use the online incorporation system. Your choice of jurisdiction can also have implications on how you're able to raise money for your business venture. If you're raising money from professional investors, think angel investors or venture capitalists, it's an important part of your plan then to indicate the choice of jurisdiction because this can signal to investors about the attractiveness of your legal entity. Obviously, the financial statements and your business plan are much more important, but if you incorporate in a jurisdiction that is hostile to minority shareholders or is unfamiliar to investors, then your choice will hinder your ability to raise money. Also, as you're building this entity, make sure to understand who can incorporate a business in your jurisdiction of choice. Jurisdictions often impose residency, citizenship, age, and type of person restrictions, so your type of legal entity might also limit the number and type of investors or owners. As part of the corporate process, you also get the honor of choosing the name of the entity. This is known as a DBA or doing business as, or a fictitious or trade name. Imagine you're going to incorporate the Wally Smith Tech Products and Services Company, LLC, in Illinois. That's quite a mouthful. So wouldn't it just be better to have your business as Wally Tech? Well, you can assume that doing business as or trade name, and you can use it in marketing and in your filings. You register your DBA in the jurisdiction where you are incorporated and where you do business to protect it, and also to comply with local law about disclosing your trade name. Finally, let's talk a little bit about foreign company registration. Most jurisdictions require companies that are not incorporated within their jurisdiction to register or get permission before doing business in that jurisdiction. So uh, the word foreign is here. This is called a foreign company registration, but foreign is not just for international businesses. If you incorporate, say, in Wisconsin, for example, and do your business in Illinois, you will need to register as a, quote, foreign corporation in Illinois. Sometimes you might want to just incorporate a second legal entity in the other jurisdiction. If you don't do this, though, you'll have to register as a foreign company. Between countries, however, foreign registration can be much more difficult. Some countries impose significant restrictions on foreign companies doing local business you'll likely need to designate a local agent for service of process and to meet residency and citizenship requirements. Whoops, well, looks like we've run out of time for this episode. So looks like you're just going to have to stay tuned for part two, where we will discuss the different types of business entities. For now, I hope all of this information, and I know it's been a lot, but I hope it's been informative for you. Our discussion next time will focus on applying the concepts we've discussed today to choosing your business entity. So we'll see you next time on that. I'm your host, Andrew J. Merzenich, licensed attorney for Prime Law Podcast.
congratulations, you've reached the disclaimer. This podcast is a production of Prime Law Group, LLC, who are attorneys licensed only in the state of Illinois. The primary purpose of this podcast is educational in nature and does not constitute legal advice of any kind. While we love that you are a devout listener, please note that no attorney-client relationship is created by you listening or acting upon anything you hear in this podcast. References to any specific product or service does not function as an endorsement or recommendation of the same. The views and opinions expressed by guests on the show are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For more information, go to www.primelawgroup.com.